covering verses 14 through 32 this morning. We'll be looking at a divided kingdom, a divided house. A gl- we'll take a glance at the unseen realm. Uh, we'll find out who are the most blessed. And we'll also uh, look at a sign from heaven. Title this morning's message is The Strong Man is Here. And aren't we glad? So th- this pers- uh, particular context is really uh, the beginning of the national rejection of Jesus as the Messiah uh, by the establishment. The representatives of the nation, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're openly criticizing Jesus and attributing his works, the miracles and teachings and all that he's doing uh, to the devil. They'll continue to challenge him and accuse him of being actually demon-possessed and Satan himself. You know, that's a hard thing to imagine, but that's exactly what was going on. The ministry of Jesus, all his teachings, his miracles, all those kind deeds which were to reveal his true identity to the nation of Israel, which obviously they were rejecting. Um, The people have, the citizens of the nation have seen his ministry. They've witnessed the events that he uh, has been conducting. And they are aware that no one, no prophet in their past history has done or said this kind of thing before. It's never been heard, never been experienced before. And it's really, they're at the point now that the decision that they make will determine their destiny. Uh, you know, when we think about how important making the right decisions are about life, um, you know, unity is a big thing. Uh, when a nation, a city, or even a family stands together in unity, they have strength. Uh, when the unity is broken, division takes hold, the foundation begins to weaken it will erode and its strength will evade and this is not a good situation because division is destructive it's the tool of the enemy that's used to destroy what is good and so the future success of our country of our families of our church of all the things that we're involved in uh, is really predicated upon being unified in the purpose that God has for us. Our future and our success and our peace and our safety are all threatened if we allow divisive tactics to be employed by the enemy. So let's stand as I read our portion of scripture this morning, uh, Luke 11, 14 through 32. And he was casting out a demon And it was mute, and so it was that when the demon had gone out, that the multitude spoke, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. A house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. But if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, but whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace... His goods are in peace. When a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes it from him, all his armor in which he trusted, and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes out through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to the house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. 
And it happened that as he spoke these things, a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. But he said, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up in judgment against the men of this generation and condemn them. She came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed... A greater than Jonah is here. Amen. You may be seated. The divided kingdom and divided houses. It's interesting here that the multitudes are marveling at the work of Jesus. They're astonished. They're filled with awe and wonder like, whoa, uh, which would be the normal response to this kind of activity. And this is actually, this word uh, marveled, is one of Luke's favorite words. He uses it more than Matthew, uh, who uses it seven times, more than Mark, who uses it seven times. So it's uh, 13 times he uses this word marvel to describe the ministry and the reaction of the people to the ministry of Christ. And rightly, we should marvel. Uh, And the opposite of that is what the establishment was doing, uh, criticizing Jesus, uh, accusing him, uh, to, uh, of casting out the demons by Beelzebul. Uh, technically, that's what Beelzebub is. Here's Beelzebul, the Lord of the Flies. He's the figure in li- mind there. The uh, prince of Baal, technically, is uh, what Beelzebul is. And he, in this context, we see him directly linked by Jesus to Satan. Well, he's not named here, but he is named that in this uh, corresponding scripture in Matthew 12. Um, And so the multitudes marvel and the establishment criticizes and then there are certain people in the crowd that aren't a part of those two attitudes. They have yet another attitude and that is they just want to seek a sign. They want uh, more uh, of what Jesus is doing. They want a sign from heaven. And this is something to, to note that no matter how many signs God may give us, it will not increase our faith. It really will not. It's, you, you can't change the uh, lack of faith by having more signs. And this is really the category, the, one of these three categories is what, we're, you know, some of us, uh, we all fit in one of these th- three. You know, we're all marveling at what God is doing. We're just in awe of his person, his beauty, his goodness, and all that he's doing, not only in our lives, but in the lives of others. That's the, that's the place that God wants us to be. Just go out. If you have trouble awing, God, just some night, just get out of your house, clear night, walk outside and just look up at the stars. Stare at them until you are filled with awe. You kind of get a feeling of just how little we really are, (laughs) how insignificant we are. You know, Isaiah talks about God sitting upon his throne and observing the inhabitants of the world. They are but grasshoppers (laughs) before him. You know, we think, uh, sometimes we think highly of ourselves, but, but when you go out and you observe nature and the power of God's creation, it is just mind-blowing, and it really does put us in our place. And I think that's something that we need to understand. You know, Job suffered tremendous health issues, did he not? Was he not under extreme spiritual assault and attack for quite some time? Was he not ridiculed and sort of scrutinized by his so-called friends, miserable comforters, you know? What did, how did the Lord approach that? Number one, he approached him uh, as God approaches all of us. Get dressed. Stand up like a man. And I will talk with you. And you will talk with me. You'll answer me. That is how God deals with his children. He doesn't baby us. He gives us grace to make it through. Now, um, he didn't tell, he didn't let Job know that he was a test case through all his trials, right? 
Yeah, that was a tough one. And, but what did he do? The Lord took him on a trip through nature. Look at what I've made. Were you there? Do you understand? It, it put, see, nature, understanding nature and observing nature puts you and I in, in a rightful place. And that's so important in our relationship with God. Uh, so we have these three uh, different categories, the people that marvel, and then there are people that criticize. You know, that's one of the easiest things to do is criticize uh, the work of God. And then it's quite a, another step to attribute that work that God is doing to the, to the enemy. That, I wouldn't want to be in those shoes standing uh, before God on Judgment Day attributing the work of God to the enemy. Not a, not a good position to be in. And then there are those people that are just reluctant to, to yield and to choose to believe in what God is doing. And uh, they're looking for more proof uh, of what, uh, and we'll talk about signs a little bit later on here. But Jesus responds. I just love uh, the Lord and the way he responds. We learn so much about God by the way Jesus responds to the hypocrites that are, he's surrounded by and to the ministry that he's expressing to the nation. You know, he, he just simply, he, notice he says there, um, Jesus knowing their thoughts. Isn't that, a, isn't that sort of humbling? <laughs> you know, sometimes I don't want the Lord to know my thoughts. <laughs> they're not exactly pleasing. They're not, they're not wholesome. They're not holy for sure. And it's convicting. But, and yet God addresses those things uh, in us because he doesn't want us to be dominated by wrong kind of thinking. And so he addresses the issues that, uh, and these responses to these people. So, they're just just a logical argument to their illogical argument, right? Uh, a kingdom divided against itself will die. You know, it'll come to desolation. You know, this is what's uh, the major tactic of the enemy. Is this not what we've been perceiving for a number of years now, and it's especially escalated in the last four or five years? Dividing our country, race baiting, you know, all kinds of divisive tactics are being used by the enemy to divide us. And it's just, uh, people don't see it as an attack from Satan, but it is. He's trying to destroy the unity that we have. We are the United States, not the divided states, right? But I'm not here to talk about politics. I'm talking about, I think we all know that the most important thing is us individually before God. Because if we are individually right with God, and we are united together in a local assembly, and our church is united, we'll be a strong example. We will become what Jesus intended us to be, will we not? That is light, and that is salt. We are here to preserve, we are here to illuminate the darkness. And God help us. May God use the church. And may we as the church stop loving the world and trying to, to fit in but rather be what God has called us to be, salt and light. Turn our affections towards him and love him with all our hearts, with all our minds, and with all our strength. That is going to call from repentance in the church. That begins with me. A house divided will fall. Think about families that are divided. I think this is one of the saddest things, one of the most grievous things that I have to, to talk with hurting people about is the broken relationships that are within uh, relatives, within families. And a lot of this has to do with because people have forsaken the application of the Bible into their lives. They're, you know, there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is what? The way of death. Death, Biblically speaking, death is separation. So if we fail to inquire of the word of the Lord, and we rely on our, rely on our own understanding, we're, we're separating ourselves from the wisdom of God. That's not good. We don't know how to live. We don't understand very much, really. We're very limited. We need God's perspective. We need his wisdom. But when a family lives by moral relativity, and everybody's doing that which is right in their own eyes, well, this is what happens. This is what's happened to our nation. We've demanded dismantled the foundations of our nation, which was truth and righteousness. We have a, a rebellious and immoral population that's without restraint. And this is very difficult to raise children in, to maintain family unity. It's, it's, 
we need more, more grace. You know, these people that are ruling and leading our nation are lawless. They're without law. But they will stand before God and they will be punished accordingly. You know, they think, people think they can do their own thing. And their sin in their lives won't affect anybody else but them. That's not true. People who live without law think they can have peace and prosperity and everything will be just fine. No, it will not. It doesn't work that way. And, and when, when a nation comes to this point, it is God that calls upon the church to take the lead. We, off, we know the scripture, but will we do the scriptures? All right? Second Chronicles, if you want to pull that up, Second Chronicles 7, 13 through 17. When I shut up heaven and there's no rain. Yeah, that's called judgment. That's getting our attention as a nation. Or I command the locusts to devour the land and to send pestilence among them, my people. So this is God dealing with his people. Not, not the world, but his people. If my people who are called by my name, number one, will humble themselves, just for one time, just be blatantly honest with God with where we are at with him in our walk with him. If we have issues, tell him. Be honest with God. Always starts with honesty before God. If we will humble ourselves, tell the truth, and pray, have a conversation with God, talk to God and listen for him to, to respond, and then seek my face. What does that mean? Well, that means his presence. This is why I don't understand why people don't understand the power of God that is released, the transforming presence of God that happens when two or three are gathered in his name. Oh, I can do that at my house. I can just listen to the messages and podcasts and over the internet and I'll be fine. No, you won't. You're only getting a third of really what you need. You need the word of God. You need fellowship. You don't get fellowship through a podcast. You get the word, but you don't get fellowship. You need fellowship and you need prayer. And you need to join and unite with the body of Christ. That is what it means to seek his face. You're seeking his presence. The church today uh, feel like it's optional. You know, if I'm hitting, you know, one out of four, I'm doing fine. For some, it's two out of four. And there's others that just can't wait till the door's unlocked and get in here. It's four for four. I'm going to bat in a thousand and I'm staying up there. Man, I want my average up there, you know, because I want to be with Jesus. And you love the presence of God. You love to sing. You love to worship. And that's what God is asking for. So, but the idea of humbling ourselves and praying and seeking his face and turning from our wicked ways, and that is the way of the world. May God help us because we are attached to the world by our fallen nature. God help us. You know, the promise that God gives for us, if we will respond to this invitation, this command really, it's really more than an invitation. He said, my eyes, this is the Lord saying what his response will be if we'll do those four things of humbling ourselves, praying, seeking his presence, and turning as repentance from our wicked ways. His eyes will be open. My ears will be attentive. God will see and God will hear and God will answer from heaven. And he'll restore. He'll sanctify us. Second Chronicles is another one that we like. Uh, 16.9 For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the entire earth to show himself strong on the behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. God has given us and expressed continually loyal love to us. And what does he expect in return? That we have loyal love to him. And when we have that, and there's that zeal for the Lord, watch out. I had a conversation with one of the brothers this week, and God's really blessed this guy. He, he's, just a, he's just one of the sweetest brothers ever. And um, he was telling me uh, how the Lord blessed him and he wasn't going to tell me, but I brought up a subject that was along the lines. And so he said, well, I wasn't going to tell you this, but here it is, and how, how God blessed him. And I said, you know, I just rejoice with you. You know, God has a way of sneaking up behind you and just blessing you. <laughs> and that's the Lord. He's, and that's part of the blessing of being his. He, he, I will, like, chase you down and bless you. That's the kind of God we serve. Because he loves his children. He loves his people. And so... 
as we see here, Jesus responding uh, uh, to this argument that he's doing all this by the devil's uh, authority. Uh, th- look, that doesn't make any sense. I'd be div- Satan does that. It, he'd be dividing his own kingdom. He'd weaken his own kingdom. He'd, he wouldn't do that. And by the way, your sons are casting out demons. Uh, how are they doing that? So they'll be your judges. So I love the way the Lord sort of just blows away every argument uh, that the establishment would throw at him. Um, so the, the obvious is that I am doing this by the authority and power of God. And this means the kingdom that has been offered to you from the Old Testament prophets is now here. Wow. That's amazing. You know, there are things that go on in our country. There are things that go on in our world in the name of God, in the church of Jesus Christ. And there's some stuff, uh, let's just be honest, it's sketch. It's a little sketchy. So there's a principle, uh, I refer to it as the Gamaliel principle. You remember in the early church when the Spirit of God fell upon the church and people were getting saved left and right, people were getting healed, just an incredible outpouring of God's Spirit, which we hope happens again in our day. Amen? Uh, but, uh, and the disciples, uh, the apostles, were uh, getting in trouble. The establishment, had, you know, they were still leftovers from Jesus' ministry, right? And they're still doing their work, criticizing and trying to stop the work of God. And uh, in chapter 5, this is, if you're taking notes, chapter 5, verses 34 through 39, um, Gamaliel uh, stands up in front of the council and says, Hey, fellas, <laughs> hold on, we better take heed to what you're doing uh, and what you intend to do with these guys. For some time ago, this Thedius rose up and claiming to be somebody, and he took a number of men, about 400 joined him, and he was slain, and all who bade him were scattered and came to nothing. And so after this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census, and he drew away many people after him. He also perished. And all who obeyed him were dispersed. And this is the Gamaliel principle right here. And now I say to you, keep away from these men, referring to the apostles, let them alone. For this plan, if, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you can do nothing to overthrow it, unless you be found to fight against God. And so when we come in contact or we hear of or we are confronted with uh, things that we question and we wonder, is that of God or not of God? Uh, The best thing to do is to apply this principle. Let them alone. Let's just see. Time always tells. Time is the great revealer of truth. You don't want to be found fighting against God. Nor, on the other hand, do you want to uh, be deceived by Uh, false prophets and liars, which Jesus said would be one of the uh, tells of the end times, deception and false prophets. So the Gamaliel principle, uh, very important. Now when we think about this explanation, this logical explanation that Jesus gave to them about criticizing him for being the devil, uh, we understand that uh, it's a pretty easy concept here. We know that strength uh, is for protection. And the strong usually win the battle. Um, We also understand that Satan has a stronghold on humanity. He guards and protects people from the truth. He doesn't want people to hear the truth about God. He wants people, lost souls, to continually be deceived. He wants them to be satisfied with the comforts of the world. And most people are contented by material wealth. What, What threatens his people the most is truth. You ever start sharing the gospel with somebody and watch them get upset and irritated immediately? That's what I'm talking about. So in and of ourselves, as lost mankind, we have no power over this deception. We have no power over Satan. I mean, we are lost and in in bondage to sin and cannot save ourselves. Only Jesus can give us the power to overcome the devil and the bondage of sin.
Jesus is the stronger man. Jesus is the one who gives us the authority and the power to overcome the devil. He's the one who takes away the devil's armor. He's the one that moves us to safety. He's the one that transfers us out of the world and into his kingdom. There is no other one but Jesus. And here's the thing. There's no neutral ground. You either are on Jesus' side, you either love Jesus or you don't. You either are for God or you're against God. There is no neutral ground. Well, you know, I'll just wait until I get older and I've, you know, sown my wild oats and I've, you know, had my fun and then when I get older I'll serve the Lord. No, you won't. You don't even know if you're going to be alive the next day. How can you know that you'll turn? Because you don't, in making that statement, you don't realize the deceitfulness of sin, how it blinds, how it hardens a person's heart. How many people that are older now well advanced in the years, said that when they were young and now they're old and their hearts are hardened and they want nothing to do with God. It's a sad state of affairs. There's no neutral ground. God is not mocked. You sow to the flesh, you and I will reap of the flesh. It is just the harsh truth that we have to face and it should humble us actually. Now, uh, continuing on here, verses 24 through 26, Jesus is uh, commenting on what happens when a demon is cast out. This mute, uh, actually it's in Matthew 12, which I think is the corresponding scripture to this, not only was this person mute where he could not speak, but he was also blinded. So this is something that's very difficult for us to understand. How much influence and how much power do the demonic forces that the in, from the unseen realm have over humanity? How is it that they can inflict maladies upon people? I have no clue how this happens, but it is what the scriptures seem to teach us, that there's a tremendous amount of influence that they have and a tremendous amount of sway they have over the minds and choices that people make. And so he's revealing to the disciples and to the crowd uh, what happens when demons are cast out. First of all, as we said, they're cast out by the power of God. It's not the power of man, not some psychologist or some psychiatrist or some drug. That's what we do with demon-possessed people in in our culture. We just drug them. Uh, That isn't going to help. That just masks the issue. They're still there and they're still destroying that person's life. But they're cast out by the power of God. And any Christian, any true son and daughter of God has the authority, has his child to cast out a demon. We can send demons into this desert, arid place, this waterless place that Jesus described. And we can disembody them because what they are doing is they are seeking a human body as a host. Now, some people think, well... The demons are just fallen angels. I, I'm of the opinion, and most of you are aware of this, that I don't believe that. I believe that uh, fallen angels uh, have a body. Uh, they, just because they rebelled, they didn't lose their physicality of whatever that may be in the spiritual realm. They're spiritual beings and they remain the same. They have their same, but they're just fallen. So where did the demons come from? Well, that's a, the Jewish... Uh, Rabbis and uh, people believed that they are the disembodied spirits of what happened in Genesis 6. Now, if we look at, if you're familiar with that text, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on just a reflection on it, uh, we have a hybrid being uh, created by the fallen angels, the sons of God, the Bene Elohim, came into the daughters of men, and they gave birth to sons, to giants to the Nephilim. And so uh, if you are familiar with those times, it says that the thoughts and deeds of and intents of the heart were only evil continually. There was a magnification of evil uh, being demonstrated on the earth at that time beyond just what happened in Genesis 3. It wasn't just the naughty things that mankind's capable of. It was a demonic uh, attack. It was a satanic attack to destroy mankind. Uh, in a major way. And so these fallen angels and all their activities, they were, it wasn't just mixing angelic beings with humans 
and creating this hybrid race, so to speak. They were messing with all kinds of DNA. And I actually think this is where Greek mythology comes in. And you know all about those things. So be that as it is, what happened then is that the flood, everything died. All those beings died. They were what? Disembodied. So in, upon the recreation through Noah and the reestablishing of the earth, uh, these guys are now looking for a place to live. Apparently that's not a place they want to be is in the unseen realm disembodied. They want to be able to express themselves in some form of in physicality. And so they seek to find a host to inhabit. Uh, as we read through this little verse, uh, these three verses here, it's really descriptive of, of um, what they're able, able to do and they're capable of. Uh, we're familiar with the term familiar spirit. Oh, it's kind of is what it sounds like it is. They're familiar with mankind. They're familiar with you and me. They know all, all they need to know about us. Uh, they're acquainted with the secrets that are within the secret. Uns, uh, the unseen realm. Uh, the word here is necromancer, and it is one who conjures up the dead uh, using the spirit of divination. And, and so this is uh, what we're talking about here. Uh, and Jesus said uh, they go out uh, into these um, arid places. Yeah, it was one of the themes in the Old Testament is this whole idea of that demons dwelt in the desert. And they would send out the goat uh, uh, to take away sin, representing sin. They would send it to where? The, to the deserted place where there was no less life, no water. It was an arid place. So uh, kind of the idea there. So um, <laughs> as a side note, I really don't like to recommend movies uh, too much at all. Um, but there's a, a, a movie that was released... Um, I think it was in April, called Nefarious. And if you're interested in a, a, a snapshot view into the unseen realm, I think uh, this was well written by a, a Christian company put this together, uh, from what I could tell. But it's a story about a, uh, an atheist uh, psychiatrist who's interviewing this uh, prison inmate uh, who's on death row, and if the atheist psychiatrist determines that he's sane, uh, he will die that evening. If he's considered insane, he'll continue to, to, to live on. Uh, uh, so um, the theology in this movie is not complete. It's just remember, it's just a movie. But it's sort of an intellectual uh, conversation that goes on for about 90 minutes. And it's quite uh, revealing as to... Uh, because he's interviewing a demon. And, of course, the psychiatrist doesn't think he's a demon. He's a multi-personality person. But the demon um, explains himself quite well. Like I said, the theology is not complete. But if you're interested in, in uh, the movie, it's called Nefarious. And um, it, it, it'll give you a glimpse into the unseen realm and the genius, the insane uh, genius and, and wickedness and the cruelty of the enemy that really, for the most part, uh, goes unnoticed. I don't think we're to concentrate on the enemy. I think we're to concentrate on the Lord. But it's good to have those peripheral visions and understands uh, how he's working and how he gets over on people because there are people that are suffering uh, like this poor inmate was. So anyway, leave that there for what it is. Um, Let's move on to uh, our next verses 27 and 28 where we see uh, those who are most blessed. This is where we want to live, is it not? <laughs> that stuff is there. It's a reality. Sometimes we have to deal with uh, things that are not preferable. But what we want to spend our time is, is with the Lord. Who are the most blessed? Anyway, do you really want to be blessed? Blessed biblically means to enjoy sacred delight, to be, we, you know, we say happy uh, or we say joyful, but it is, it is, God is the most blessed and he wants us to enjoy that kind of joy in life that only he can give. And according to Jesus, 
uh, in verse 28, uh, the, the blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now the word here is a simple word here. It's a kuo. It's, it's to, it is to listen. It is to actually hear the sound, but the, the heart intent is to, to gain understanding. So hearing the word of God. I read the word of God a lot of times and I don't get it. I don't understand it, but I, I want to hear more. I want to know more. And there's that, because there's that an attitude towards that. So this is what Jesus is saying. Those who, who hear the word of God and those who keep the word of God. And the idea here of keep is learning to guard, guard yourself. Uh, we have heard the word of God and now we desire it for our lives. And here, herein is really a key to victory and to, to enjoy this blood blessedness. One of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is self-control. I think this is one of the lacking expressions of love in the life of most Christians. We do not really display the self-control, temperance if you're a King James person, uh, but we need self-control. It's the key to the victory in our lives. If we practice on listening and to understand we're going to enjoy this sacred delight if we apply the word of God to our lives. So the peace of God will rule our hearts. It will abound with joy. If we fail to hear the word of God, if we fail to keep the word of God, unfortunately the contrary uh, applies. Uh, we will not hear or understand. We will experience suffering. We'll suffer pain and sorrow. And really it comes down to the degree that I am willing to hear and keep is the degree that I'll experience that joy. To the degree that I reject it and resist it is the degree that I'll suffer sorrow and pain. It's our choice. The power of choice is so important. You know, it's really easy sometimes to not really appreciate all that we've been given. We have been given so much in our country. The think of how free Freely, we can just pick up our Bibles at any time during the day or open up our device and go to our little Bible app and just push a button and listen to the Word of God. Most of the world does not have that privilege. There are people, as you know, around this world that are suffering persecution and are, their lives are at stake if they reveal that they're Christians. And once they're found out, the persecution is just cruel. Sometimes... It's easy to forget how blessed the people we are and that we should take advantage of the grace of God and the goodness of God uh, that we've been given here. Moving on to verse 29 through 32, we see uh, this seeking of a sign and Jesus is really addressing that third group there. Uh, you know, in chapter uh, six, or verse 16 rather, um, The thing about signs are um, we understand that miracles are, are done on earth. They're, they're on this kind of this horizontal level. But when you're, they're talking about here and they're say, seeking a sign, they want, they want something that's demonstrative from the heavenly realm, something that comes from heaven, you know, like the blood moons or something dramatic type of thing. And so they're asking Jesus as a word to accredit himself. If you really are the Messiah, then... And this is um, usually people that are unfaithful to God and, and, and want uh, something dynamic because, you know, how often do signs like that appear? You know, they can kind of continue on their path of disobedience because, well, after all, there's no vindication here, so, you know, it's kind of not a good place to be. And so... Um, the people that were living in the time of Christ are no different than us. We're the same as they are. Uh, we, we all want to be sure of what we believe. And, and this is what's special about this passage right here because Jesus gives that generation as he gives, as he gives our generation the same sign. He, he says, this evil generation, so, you know, equivalents here right seeks a sign and no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah the prophet well what was that well he was three days and three nights in the 
belly of the fish, right? Even so, Jesus was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Well, we know that that happened. And what was the message? <clears throat> what was the message sent to these Gentiles? as a message of repentance. Now, every Israelite in the time of Jesus and throughout their history knew that if a Gentile wanted to come to faith, what did they need to do? They had to. They must repent. They must turn from the worship of these, four, these little gods, these gods, little g, and come to worship the living and true God, Yahweh. So they were, you know, Jesus is using this. Yes, you, you're, Nineveh, the city of Gentiles, we sent a Jewish prophet there and preached repentance. Just because they're Gentiles, they're no different than the Jews. You need to repent. You need to believe. And what is repentance? Sometimes we need it defined. It's the idea of changing our self-centered, autonomous life experience to having God rule our hearts and our lives. To have our lives directed by Him. Literally, it means just change your actions. In the Greek, uh, is more change your mind. But if when you think about whether Hebrew word or the Greek word, whether it's change your action and change your mind, repentance involves both. You change your mind, you're going to change your actions. It's a reconsideration of the direction that you are heading in life. You are either on a quest coming towards God to know Him, or you're going away from God and you're rejecting Him. There is no neutral ground. Repentance is a turning from bondage and sin and a turning to God, making God the priority of our lives. You know, this is what happens to us when we get saved, and is it not? We get a new attitude. We get a new heart. We're born again. We have a new man dwelling within, and now there's a war going on between the old man and the new man. But we have a new master who gives us grace and mercy. To further understand repentance, Paul uh, taught this to the Corinthians who were a prosperous church. They, Corinth was a coastal port city and they were very wealthy because of the trade that took place there, that tremendous economy. So the, there were, there were, the church was very successful there. Paul spent a year and a half there laying the foundation and teaching these people and they, they grew in the Lord. They matured quickly in the gifts. As we read, they had the gifts of the Spirit. They were open to the work of the Holy Spirit, but they were also carnal in so many ways. So carnality and immaturity in the gifts of the Spirit, I mean, you kind of wonder, wait, wait, how does that all work? Well, we don't really know, but that's what was going on there. And Paul had to straighten them out a few times. I know that's a, it's a corrective letter to them. And in 2 Corinthians 7, he talks about uh, the harshness of one of the first letter that he wrote to them. Look, at, you know, I'm sorry about the letter. I regret, don't regret it, though I did regret it. I perceive that this letter made you sorry only for a while. But now I rejoice in that you were made sorry, but your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For I observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what a clearing of yourselves, what indignation, and what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this manner. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, but for the sake of him who suffered the wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. And so we see some powerful words that are used by Paul. Sorrow, the grief, and regret. Regret, 
you know, uh, wow, I just really care about this. And, and yet that sorrow caused me to change my mind, to repent, to reconsider the direction that my life was taking. And sometimes we need to be confronted with the truth. You will never have victory in our lives unless we are willing to face the truth about ourselves. So God help us. It's not optional. Repentance is not optional. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to turn to God. We're living in a day and age where it's an easy to just accept Jesus in your heart and you'll be saved. Yeah, that's uh, step one. What's the next step? It's the turning to God. See, because accepting Jesus in your head is not the same as having Jesus in your heart. There's a lot of people who have a lot of correct theology in their minds, but it is not settled 12 inches into their heart, downward into their heart. So it is accepting the Lord, but then allowing my heart to be changed. A true turning to God. A true sorrow over the way I have lived. As I said, he used... Nineveh as an example but then he also uses the queen of Sheba a woman no less which was condescending how women were condescended in that day and it's almost like Jesus is trying to really give them the perspective you guys are so prejudiced but even this woman whom they would disdain as Jewish leaders the establishment looked down upon women he's using the queen of Sheba as an example of one who believed and had faith so much so that she came to hear Solomon's wisdom. But what was really Jesus communicating here? And this is where we want to end. Some of you are familiar with this. I use this reference on occasion. But I think it's something that you need to have a good working knowledge of, and that is Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 16. He says in verse 30, as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Son of Man, when we read through this often, whatever gospel it may be in, immediately, generally speaking, our, do not, does not our mind go to him? Well, he's just, again, uh, sort of solidifying his humanity. But in reality, it's the opposite. The term son of man does not refer so much to his humanity as it does his deity. And so for him to use this term, and remember he used this in his trial. And this, is what got him, this is what got him crucified in the end. You, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They knew exactly what he was trying to communicate. We need to understand. That generation needed to understand what Jesus was doing is revealing to them his true identity. I am not Satan. I'm not Belzebub here. I'm the son of man. Who is the son of man? This is the greatest sign. You guys, we want a sign? Well, let's just look at the sign that's already been given in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. Let's go ahead and turn there. Daniel chapter 7. Verse 13, Daniel's having a vision. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And then to him was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So we have two persons here in the Godhead, do we not? The Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. That sounds like the return of Christ, does it not? To the Ancient of Days, that would be the Father. So we have the Son of God coming near the Father, and he's receiving what? An everlasting kingdom. That's the sign. That's all the sign we need. How much more information, how much more confirmation do we need to know that Jesus Christ is the truth? He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way. 
to join his kingdom. Think about it. He's the strong man in the kingdom. He's the one who spoils the enemy. He's the one that breaks the bondage that the enemies put upon us. In Christ, we have complete and total victory. Without Jesus, we lose and we live a defeated life. That's just that simple. You bring Jesus into the equation of your life and you will have victory. Without him, you'll live in defeat. And the choice is yours. The choice is mine. What will you choose today? Will you choose him? Will you choose to bring him into to your life equation to deal with the issues that you're facing as a man, as a woman, as a child? Paul wrote to the Hebrew Christians, beloved, and this is what I would say to you this morning, my brothers and sisters, we're confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. And though I speak in this manner, for God is not unjust to forget your labor of love, which you have shown in his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence and full assurance until the end, that you not become sluggish, but that you imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We stay faithful to God. We're going to get all and receive all that he has for us. Don't you just love the promises that are in God's word? Eye has not seen. Ear has not heard. Nor is it entered into the heart of man. The things that God has prepared for those who love him. So let's do our best this week to get off the horizontal physical plane and get vertical and enjoy the word of God, to really hear the word of God and let it settle into our hearts and keep it so that we might enter into the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And may the Lord be gracious to you today and this week. May his countenance be lifted upon you and give you the greatest gift of all, and that's his peace. Lord bless you. Shall we stand?